Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England. The History of Europe, actually, part 8, 1450-1500-ish. I have spoken many times of the network I belong to, Agora Podcast Network. This month's featured podcast is Lands of Leviathan, a wide-ranging podcast on political science and international relations. If you want to find out more, hop along to landsofleviathan.com or indeed download it from iTunes or your normal podcatcher. Now then, everyone, we are broadly speaking in a sort of sweep-up mode. So this week I thought, hey, it's a while since we've spoken of the history of Europe, and not even England, despite the channel, operated in a vacuum, but was part of a greater Christendom. So, I thought it would be a good idea to bring us all up to date with the general situation in Europe, so that you can see what influences and concerns would have been playing on the minds of the English political classes. This episode is, of course, a complete travesty. A joke. Half a century of European history in 30 minutes or so, what? So, I will endeavour just to give you the highest level story I can, but you know me, as certainly as the Jatravartrid people of Witfudel VI will one day see the coming of the Great White Handkerchief, I'll end up getting dragged into detail. So let me just flag up those big themes for you at the beginning, so that you can tick them off and keep them in your head. So it's a period where the crisis of Christendom deepens, an increasingly venal and temporal papacy, the failure of war against the heretic Hussites in Bohemia, dragged into the wars of the Italian peninsula along with the Empire of France and Spain. The rise of the independent nation-state, or the start of that with the appearance of standing armies and central taxation. In Eastern Europe, it's the end of the line for the Roman Empire at Constantinople and the seemingly inexorable rise of the Ottoman Empire. While there emerges the self-proclaimed successor to the Eastern Empire, the Tsars of Russia, freed from the Golden Horde and sharing with Byzantium the Orthodox religion as part of their identity. While in Western Europe, 
it's time for the appearance of the great entity that will play such a part in 16th century Europe, the Habsburg Empire. It's a century where Europe is dominated by the chaos of internal and dynastic wars, which very much mirror the chaos of the Wars of the Roses. England, meanwhile, will broadly speaking remain a small, damp island off the northwestern edge of Europe. Oh yes, and then there's a small matter of the Italian Renaissance and world exploration, which I just simply don't have space for here, and we'll come back to, or maybe ignore, the Renaissance. The Ray what? So, we left Europe back in episode 133. We'd heard about the trials and tribulations of the papacy, a spectacularly bad century pope-wise, with the schism and the Babylonian captivity in Avignon. We'd heard how Emperor Sigismund convened the Council of Constance in 1414 to 1418, where that schism had finally been repaired. At Constance also, Jan Hus, the religious leader of Bohemia, had been kindly offered safe conduct to come and discuss his ideas, before being kindly burned at the stake for heresy. So the papacy is hopefully a reasonable place to start. The very broad history of Europe in the late Middle Ages and early modern period involves the rise of independent nation-states. Or maybe more accurately, the decline in the concept of the unity of Christendom in a political as well as a religious sense. And also, of course, it will become the history of the final breakdown of the unity of Christendom in a religious sense as the Reformation and religious wars of the 16th century get underway. And in that process... In many places, church and state will begin to come together in a way that the papacy had strenuously tried to avoid. The story of the 15th century is one of the continuing failure to recover any claim to moral leadership. At Constance, Emperor Sigismund had at least tried to re-establish the papacy as an institution capable of such a thing. Though as emperor, he'd have been horrified at the idea of any temporal role for the papacy. One answer to the pain and agony of the 14th century papacy was felt to be to control it better. And Constance was a fine example of what became known as the conciliar approach. The conciliar view came out of William of Ockham's dissatisfaction with the papacy in the 14th century and his writing that the universal church, as he called it, was a congregation of the faithful, not just the Catholic church. Lay people were intimately involved in this universal church And while the universal church could not err, the individual could. The individual pope could. And that individual pope could be corrected by a council representing the congregation of the faithful. At Constance, where two existing popes were deposed and a new one put in their place, it appeared to have been demonstrated that this was the new way of the world. At Constance, the council compelled popes to convene councils, But then, maybe the inevitable backlash came, and by the mid-15th century, and another period with an anti-pope, papal supremacy was effectively back. The council survived in some small form. So, to give the negative side of the story first, through the 15th century, the papacy remained a venal institution riddled with the politics of power, Roman politics, influence and greed and family advancement. Hopefully that sounds negative enough for you. This is the era of the Borgias, of the feeble Callistus III, who nonetheless had the strength to make his nephew a bishop and cardinal, of Rodrigo Borgia, who would become Alexander VI, Pope from 1492 to 1503. 
As leader of Christendom, Alexander VI set the fine example by having many mistresses, for example, in defiance of the principle of priestly celibacy, of course, of advancing his infamous son, Cesare, of all those nasty rumours about Lucrezia. Even more delightfully, Alexander is supposed to have said, Never have mercy for those who won't help themselves, which sentiment is slightly difficult to align with the teachings of the church he led. In Alexander, we have a deeply political man, his eyes firmly fixed on power and all matters temporal. It's also the time of Julius II, the warrior pope, who led troops into battle himself and fought viciously for the pope's temporal powers, and incidentally granted a dispensation that allowed Henry VIII of England to marry Catherine of Aragon. Ironically, during a period where papal leadership was increasingly called into question, the area of belief which people were ordered to accept unquestioningly was actually expanding. In 1439, for example, the doctrine of the seven sacraments was regularised. The doctrine of transubstantiation, whereby the bread and the wine were miraculously transformed into the blood and body of Christ during the Eucharist, the target of Wycliffe's ire, was now refined, so that now only the priest was allowed to drink the wine. But equally, there is no doubt that for the mass of individuals, the Church remained the leader of a vibrant and relevant religion, in which the vast majority actively participated, and which formed the basis of daily and annual lives. So in England in particular, more recent research has very much modified that old traditional picture of a clergy, for example, incapable of delivering religious support. There were strenuous efforts, for example, to create a better, more educated clergy. And the Pope was a figure venerated and obeyed by similar multitudes. Even kings and political leaders recognised that the Pope had authority, however they might argue over the boundaries. But as we will cover at some time in the future, in some depth, the old idea that the Reformation came because a rotten and corrupt church collapsed from within is far from accurate. For the vast majority, the Catholic Church played a crucial and vibrant part of their everyday lives. So while the big story was of the growth of a more confident, centralised new monarchy in France and Spain in particular, it's worth leavening the bread of this image. We still have to be careful of applying the concept of nation-states as opposed to the medieval concept of dynastic kingdoms. There's no doubt that the forces leading to an independent political entity are strong and visible all over Europe. So in England, for example, the Hundred Years' War reinforces the sense of Englishness. The use of the English language mirrors the same thing. English kings had passed acts of something called primunire, which makes the point that all rights of jurisdiction in the church are those of the king, not the pope, so such as taxation or giving benefices or church posts that the primary loyalty of the clergy is to the king, not the pope. As the primacy faces challenges, it's forced to make deals in return for support, especially with Spain and France, for example, to allow monarchs to control things like church appointments in the same way. So, slowly within countries, church and state are actually becoming entwined, and monarchs assert their independence from the old ideal of that single Christendom. But the idea of nation-states implies the primacy of the concept of a shared, conscious nation, which has some time to come about before these dynasties that rule Europe are replaced. The challenge to Christendom came from the outside as well. 
It came from a dynamic, vibrant, growing power from the East, whose inexorable rise terrified Christendom, and would carry it all the way to the walls of Vienna. We'd left Constantinople, the Balkans and Eastern Europe after the catastrophe of Nicopolis in 1396. Since then, the story had been one of constant warfare between Holy Roman Emperors, Hungarian and Serbian kings, the Ottoman Empire, and around them, the Italian trading states of Venice and Genoa, who play a sort of wild-cold role. Unaccountable, at one time fighting for Christendom, at another time helping out the Ottomans, essentially in pursuit of trade and profit. In 1421, Constantinople was besieged by Murad II. But by playing with local politics and an Ottoman pretender, this time the city escaped. But the general story is one of Ottoman expansion as Murad II pushed northwards into the Balkans and towards Hungary. At this point, a couple of memorable names emerge. One of these is the great Hungarian general Janos Hunyadi. Despite his reputation, Hunyadi knew defeat at the hands of the Ottomans all too well. At the disastrous battles of Varna and Kosovo in 1444 and 48. But his famous long campaign in the Balkans played a vital part in keeping the Ottomans from overrunning Hungary and left Hungary as the bulwark against the Ottoman Empire. When we left Constantinople itself, it was a shadow of its former self. By 1453... It was not much more than a city island in the midst of the Ottoman Empire, where it had once numbered 500,000 people, it had become severely depopulated, with probably only 50,000 now living in the vast spaces within the city itself, encircled by the mighty Theodosian walls. By this stage, Murad had finally died, and Mehmet II became emperor at the tender age of 19 in 1451. Now, the West saw an inexperienced boy posing no great threat. But Emperor Constantine XI, he knew better, and he urged the West to come to his rescue. But almost no help came. Venice, for example, had been trading with the Ottomans for years and saw no reason to do anything that would upset a good trading relationship. There was one honourable exception and this was the young Genoese captain Giovanni Guistiniani, who brought 700 armed men into the city in January 1453 and was immediately given command of the land walls. It is a crying shame that I am only the history of England, because the fall of Constantinople is, of course, a brilliant story. But never fear, you can, of course, hop along to episode 167A and hear the guest episode by Paul Vincent. Once the city had fallen, Mehmet renamed Constantinople Islambol, the place where Islam flourishes. The Greeks that survived he now welcomed back to the city. Hagia Sophia was converted into a mosque, but over half of the subjects of the Ottoman Empire were non-Muslims, and so the Greeks were permitted to keep their church and free to live there and worship. I say free, it was actually paid for, as long as they paid their special taxes for being an infidel, of course and many did. Constantinople once again flourished, and within 50 years was again the thriving, bustling place it had once been, largest city in all Europe. The Ottoman Empire had won its natural capital. 
Mehmet II went on to conquer more and more land, earning his name Mehmet the Conqueror. Some remnants of the Roman Empire survived in Greece and Trebizond on the Black Sea, but in a few years were snuffed out. The Khanate of the Crimea fell, and lands beyond eastern Turkey. In the Balkans, Serbia fell, Wallachia and Romania, Bosnia and Albania. Key events and people meant that the path of Ottoman expansion was not always smooth. At the famous siege of Belgrade in 1456, Hunyadi led the defence which finally forced Mehmet to retreat, stabilising the borders of Hungary for half a century. Until Mohash. Just to be trivial for a moment, it's in this period, between 1431 and 1477, that lived a soft and squishy sort of bloke called Vlad the Impaler, who ruled as Prince of Wallachia in Romania. So he's the historical figure that inspired the stories of Count Dracula, of course. He has quite a life, fighting amongst the Balkan states, fighting the Ottomans, captured for a while by the Ottomans, imprisoned by the Hungarians. He wasn't dull, whatever else you might say about him. There is a historical basis for his name, Impaler. And his reputation for cruelty spread through Europe during his lifetime. So, those of you who are of a squeamish disposition, turn away now. OK? It seems perfectly true that impaling was his preferred method of execution. A stake was used, often a super thin stake, inserted through the rectum and out through the mouth, so that the victim could live for days. At home, his reign began with a forest of stakes, reputedly 20,000 men, women and children impaled on a forest of stakes by his castle window. You can turn back now. But how you see Vlad the Impaler depends a bit on where you were. The German texts are lurid tales of horrible deaths and vicious torture. Russian texts as a deadly warrior who committed the destruction that a man of war needed to and Romanian text as a hero. It pays you money and takes your choice. The fall of the Eastern Roman Empire gave others the opportunity to bid for the title. The desire to acquire the kudos that after all this time still attached the great culture and empire still ran strong in the European blood. Now, in 1462... The 22-year-old Ivan III, or Ivan the Great, became the Grand Prince of Moscow. By the time of his death in 1505, Moscow was transformed. His reign saw what was called the Gathering of the Rus, as he tripled the size of his lands and finally threw off the yoke of the Golden Horde forever. In 1467, he married the niece of Constantinople's last emperor, Zoe Palaiologos who had fled to the Pope for protection. And the prestige, the prestige that came with this marriage, is hard to exaggerate. Up to then, Moscow had been a peripheral province in one of the most downtrodden branches of Christianity, barely on the map, accompanied by a vague smell of boiled cabbage. But Ivan rejected the accompanying offer from the Western Pope of the title of Rex, or King. He chose instead the title of Caesar or Tsar in Russian. By this, Ivan set two principles at the heart of the new Russia that would emerge under Ivan the Terrible, Ivan the Fourth. One, 
Russia was the champion of the true Christianity, the Orthodox faith. And in Russia was the new, the Third Rome. As Russia consolidated and took on the mantle of the Third Rome, the traditional seat of the Western Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, had throughout the 14th century and early 15th century been a chaotic story. One thing had been established. Any claim the emperor might have had to Italy was purely theory now. In Italy, the 14th century is a story of complexity that I simply don't have the time or intellectual strength to go into. Essentially, the struggle continued between Milan, Venice, Florence, Naples and the papacy, along with the ambitions of the smaller city-states. But eventually, at the Treaty of Lodi in 1454, a balance of power was established between these big states, which finally shut down the ambitions of those smaller states and brought a period of almost 50 years of peace, during which the Renaissance, of course, continued to flourish. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So the Empire's focus was now very much Germany, the low countries of modern-day Belgium and Netherlands, and Eastern Central Europe. But the Empire never had the confident powerful and centralising national leaders that existed in England, France, Spain and Russia. Germany was a mess of states, from the absolutely titchy with a few miles square to significant states such as Bavaria. The hereditary principle had therefore not attached itself to the role of emperor, who instead was elected by seven prince-electors. And the position of emperor was the playground of a small group of powerful families, the House of Luxembourg, the Wittelbachs, the Vettins and the Habsburgs. Germany would remain a triumph of regionalism, at very least until the arrival of the Iron Duke Bismarck in the 19th century. But one thing did change in the 15th century. Although the election of emperors would remain in theory, one of those families won the struggle, the House of Habsburg. Habsburgs would hold the title of Holy Roman Emperor continuously from 1438 to 1740. The dynasty took its name from the castle of Habsburg in Switzerland, but early in their career, the centre of power lay in Austria. And there is a saying that goes, Let others wage for you, happy Austria, marry. Though given the number of wars the Habsburgs were involved in, this is a deeply ironic saying, but there is some truth in it, because it was success at the game of marriage that saw the Habsburgs extend their lands to become the most powerful dynasty in Europe. Frederick III was a Habsburg who ruled between 1452 and 1493 and was mocked as the arch-sleepyhead of Europe. A characteristic may be better represented as a careful man who knew getting embroiled in every flare-up would be likely to drain away his limited resources. It was his son, Maximilian, who was part of the final end of the House of Burgundy and the architect through marriage of the structure of Western European politics. We've heard of him before. Now, here I have a choice. 
The objective of this bit of the podcast is to relay how we get to the point where a man called Charles V becomes the most extraordinarily powerful emperor of vast lands. We can go through all the marriages and family relationships if we want. But you are frequently telling me that holding on to all these names is something of a mare. So, I'm going to really summarise. Hope I've done the right thing. It all starts with the death in 1477 of Charles, the last Valois Duke of Burgundy, in the mud and ice of Nantes, as we have already heard, widowing his second wife, the Yorkist Margaret of Burgundy. He left but one heiress from his first marriage, Mary of Burgundy. It was Maximilian of Habsburg who married Mary. Here's the bit I'm now going to summarise. So, meanwhile in Spain, as I'll cover in a minute, we are going through the process of the crowns of the various kingdoms coming together. And Mary and Maximilian's children marry well, as it were, into various branches of the ruling monarchs of Spain. After all the dust has settled, when all's said and done, we are left with this situation, which is a situation that Henry VIII of England will have to deal. Can I just say it is unwise of me to summarise so much, since between 1474 and 1506, essentially there is a feeding frenzy between Spain, France and the Empire over all the inheritances involved. But let's hope I don't suffer for it later. Anyway, by various routes, this is, I think, what you need to know. So, by 1482, effectively the independent, glittering Duchy of Burgundy, one of the defining factors in England's relationship and the Hundred Years' War, is gone. The core of the Duke's possessions in modern-day France, what we now call Burgundy, were taken back by Charles VIII of France, and at last France could close the book with relief on that particular chapter of its personal political chaos, while it was opening the chapter on many more, let me tell you. The Duke of Burgundy's other possessions in the Low Countries, they went elsewhere. So, born in 1500, by 1516 a young man called Charles had become the Habsburg King of all Spain, not including Portugal, of course. Three years later he had also become the Holy Roman Emperor on the death of Maximilian. Charles V, as he was then known, was at the age of 19 the ruler of the most staggeringly complicated and enormous range of territories. In his portfolio, and let me very consciously call it portfolio rather than kingdom, because there is no integration between them all except in his person. So Charles V ruled the Low Countries. He ruled Germany. He ruled lands in Central Europe. And he ruled Spain. He was also the King of Naples, i.e. southern Italy, and that is a battle that will dominate Habsburg and Valois for years. Charles VIII of France gathered the biggest army ever and stormed north to south through Italy, blowing up everything in his way, and won the battle, sat there in Naples and realised he couldn't stay and had to go. And in the end, it was the Spanish that won that particular battle. So, Charles V ruled all these lands through a very different methods and rules, with very different levels of power and control, and absolutely mind-bending, buttock-clenching, toe-curling complexity. It involved him in wars unimaginable. In the Low Countries, towns like Ghent fiercely defended their independence. In Naples, he was involved in that fierce struggle for dominance with France. Germany was, of course, a political patchwork, 
and a hideous nightmare. As a Catholic monarch, he would have to deal with the Reformation in many of his lands, particularly, of course, in Germany. Meanwhile, the other heads of Europe watched his inheritance with absolute horror at the emergence of this potential superstate at their heart. And no more so than France, proudly determined and indeed used to being effectively the leading kingdom of Christendom. Until his abdications from 1554, Charles V and the Habsburg Empire was a defining factor in European politics and will no doubt figure highly in my next European episode. Which brings us, as night follows day, to Spain, which is one of the stories of the 15th century. Now when we left, the Iberian Peninsula had five kingdoms. Portugal, Chichitani Navarre, Aragon, Castile and in the south the Moorish kingdom of Granada. By 1512 it would be transformed. Spain, like so much of Europe, is a model of internal strife and dynastic politics that make the Wars of the Roses look like a nice evening in with a cup of tea and a piece of lardy cake. Which is, by the way, far nicer than it sounds. But, like cheesecake, not actually a cake. Anyway, Aragon in northeastern Spain was at its height at this time, with a Mediterranean and commercial empire stretching out to southern Italy, and in fact to Naples. Both Aragon and Castile were riven by civil war for different reasons. In Aragon, it was a struggle between the old contractual relationships between subject and king and a desperate drive for absolutist royal power, which really doesn't happen. In Castile, rather like England, it was a struggle between the monarch and a series of overmighty subjects, and again like England, caused by the incompetence of the king, Enrico IV. This situation was transformed by two of Europe's most famous monarchs, the most Catholic dual monarchy of Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. Isabella and Ferdinand had been married in 1469, Isabella essentially forced to elope across the border in order for the marriage to take place. Catherine of Aragon, by the way, the wife famously to be mistreated by Henry VIII, was their daughter. Anyway, when King Enrico IV died in 1474, what followed was a vicious civil war, from which, by 1480, Isabel had emerged victorious, though in fact she was not rightfully the next in line. And so now we have a dual monarchy. Isabella is Queen of Castile, Ferdinand, King of Aragon. This is not a united Spain. That has to wait for Charles V. But they rule together. And bringing the two kingdoms together means that Spain is an increasingly powerful factor in European politics. I am going to talk about two big things then concerning our most Catholic monarchs. The first is the final conquest of the Moorish Emirate of Granada. Granada in the south of Spain looks on the map like a rather sad and feeble remnant of the great Moorish kingdom of Spain, reduced over centuries of the Reconquista. And indeed, it had been a tributary state of Castile for 250 years. But that is to undersell it, ladies and gentlemen, that is to undersell it badly. Protected by the natural barrier of the Sierra Nevada, it was not an easy fruit to be plucked in a military sense. In an economic sense, it was the regional entrepot of Mediterranean African trade. There were 70 walled towns just in the emirate alone, and by 1450, Granada itself was the largest city in Europe. 
But Isabella and Ferdinand were not called the most Catholic monarchs for nothing. So the conquest of Granada began in 1481 and lasted until finally Granada itself was besieged. And eventually, in 1492, that's 11 years later, Granada surrendered after a carefully agreed treaty which guaranteed the rights, religions and customs of the Islamic inhabitants. Good on you, Isabella. But of course, the Catholic Church was not keen on this idea and they told Isabella to break it. When Isabella hesitated, the Grand Inquisitor held out a cross to her and cried, Judas sold his master for 30 pieces of silver. How many will you take for this cross? So, oath-breaking it was then. The many Jews living in Granada were given a choice, convert or leave. And perhaps 20,000 Sephardic Jews chose to leave. By 1502, the Muslims had the same choice. Those who converted, the conversos as the Jews were known and the moriscos as the Muslim converts were known, were viewed with suspicion and persecution evermore. A far from glorious story. Both were pursued by an infamous institution which had been founded in 1476, also by Isabella. Now this was initially called the Holy Brotherhood. And initially Isabella's objective was law enforcement. The noble brigands of Castile against whom she fought needed to be repressed and controlled. But then in 1483 it was remodelled to become the first institution of a united Spain, as it happens, the Holy Inquisition. Under the Queen's confessor, the Grand Inquisitor, heresy or treason were scarcely indistinguishable. Church and state intertwined and working together. Non-conformers, Jews, dissidents were rigorously persecuted, first in Castile and then with the fall of Granada in the Old Emirate as well. In 1494, in view of their rigour and fanaticism, the Borgia Pope Alexander VI proudly confirmed on them the title by which they had become known, the Most Catholic Monarchs. Effectively, by the time of Isabella's death in 1504, the Spanish peninsula had two nations, Spain and Portugal. So there you go, the history of medieval Spain in 700 words. What a nightmare. One more word, though, before we summarise and close. There are many parallels between Isabella in particular and Henry VII. Both were presented as saviours of their nations who had come to save their nations from anarchy. Both worked hard to blacken the name of their predecessors, Enrico IV and Richard III. The later successes of both their nations was used to justify their rather dubious rise to power. So, just for interest's sake, quite a close parallel. But I am now going to stop there and summarise. I am conscious that there are more than a couple of topics I have not covered that I plan to, exploration outside Europe, medieval thought and the start of the Renaissance specifically, but I'll have to deal with those at a future time. Forgive me. So, let me summarise by returning to some of those themes we introduced at the start. While the Christian religion played as big a part in people's daily lives as ever, Christendom as a united concept faced more challenges than ever. After two centuries of papal strife and schism, with increasingly tight doctrinal control by the papacy, contrasting with the earthly nature of the papacy, and the continued existence of the Kingdom of Bohemia. And with the fall of Constantinople and the rising tide of both the Ottoman Empire and Orthodox Russia, Christendom as a united concept 
was under enormous pressure. The second half of the 15th century was a time of extraordinary strife, both between kingdoms, but particularly within kingdoms. Now, I'm not going to declare an end to all of this internal strife, but some kind of watershed does appear to have been crossed in three nations at least, around 1500. In England, the Wars of the Roses have come to an end at last. In Spain, a kind of unity has been achieved and within a few years a formally united Kingdom of Spain will appear. In France, the divisions which have racked it in Burgundy and Brittany have been brought to a close. Despite the determination of all these three kingdoms in 1500 to espouse and defend the Catholic faith, to different degrees, all of them saw independence from interference from the papacy as critical. All of them sought to centralise, to emphasise the primacy of the monarchy and of national independence, and this meant having control of church as well as secular institutions. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, was a phrase where the boundary between the two was differently drawn by the end of the 15th century. However, in terms of conflict between kingdoms, well, new sources of international conflict are appearing before the century is out. The terrifying prospect of Habsburg hegemony over Europe. While Italy has enjoyed a more peaceful period than it had previously enjoyed before, all of that was about to end with the fallout of Charles VIII's attempt to make good his claim to the throne of Naples, and as a result, the conflicts between the competing powers of Western Europe, France, Spain, the Habsburgs, will be played out for two generations in Italy. In France and Spain in particular, rulers brought a new degree of internal order as they focused the energies of their subject on that struggle, on that external struggle. England would sit on the periphery of the struggle, wooed at times by all sides, but unable, despite the ambitions of Henry VIII and even Henry VII on a couple of occasions, unable to take part. To reinforce the small, damp island comment from earlier, England simply did not have the resources to play in the European game. One key thing is about populations. Now, estimating populations in medieval Europe is, as you can imagine, something of a problem. But France's was around 12 to 19 million, Spain and Portugal around 7. England's population is somewhere around a no-good two-bit cotton-picking 2 to 3 million. But the structure of the state's was another factor as well. France has the capability to tax and create a standing army, which it begins to do for the first time. Spain begins to get all that income from their new territories around the world. So, when France and Spain were divided and troubled by internal war, the size of England's resources was less apparent. Against a united Spain and a united France, that ceased to be the case. So there we go, everyone. End of an episode which could have been the most difficult I've had to write, certainly for some time, really struggled with it. I have now completed an up-to-date schedule, which I've put on the website historyofengland.com, where there is, by the way, also a map of Europe for this week's episode. Now, I'm going to cut a deal with you all. This says that essentially, except for holidays, since we're going to see Larry in Vermont due to Larry's enormous generosity, every week for the next ten weeks I will produce an episode every week. Now, I know you've got a bit used to this, but seriously, I had intended to go back to the three and four situation. However, 
The kicker is that I'm restarting the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, so what will happen is that you'll get a History of England every fortnight and a History of Anglo-Saxon England every fortnight. This means that the next History of England episode will be on the 16th of October. It'll be a chance to take a general step back and consider what England was like at the start of the Tudor age. So, until then, thanks so much to all my donators, both monthly and new. And my thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 